you need to go through the battle before you're in the battle so that you can win the battle. And so Jesus really did that, you know, and, um, you know, he said, Lord, if there's some way, there, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. I mean, like, without a moment's hesitation, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And um, so we see him in the garden, and then um, we see him on trial, and then we see him on the cross. We know that the veil was rent, and then um, for three days and three nights, it actually says he went to hell, conquered hell, got the keys of death, hell, and the grave from the devil, and um, won victory over him. And then we focused, and I'll, I'll read this part for just a second, and then we'll uh, pick up where we were. You know, I put in my notes, was he forced to go to the cross? No, he wasn't forced to go to the cross. He went of his own accord. Actually, he said he gave, he gave his life up uh, of his own accord. And we read John 18, 1 through 8, um, and I'll just read part of it. The priests and the Pharisees had given Judas a, consignment, a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. And um, so you've got the Roman soldiers and temple guards, and then the Pharisees and the rulers of the law were all there. They went to get him. And the Roman soldiers alone, they estimate, were 300 to 600 men, well-trained men. And then you actually had the temple guards, which would guard the temple, had a place next to the temple. And um, with those guys and the Pharisees and the rulers of the law, you find that uh, Matthew called it a great multitude. Mark called it a great multitude. Luke called it an enormous amount of people. And you, if you know anything about Luke, you know Luke was a detail guy. He was a doctor, a physician, and he gave you great detail. So whenever I'm looking at stuff, and I like detail, so if I want to figure out, I'm reading the Bible, and I'm like, well, what was this? I want to know, did Luke write about this? Because if Luke wrote about it, I know I'm going to get more information than anybody else is going to give me. So Luke said, it's enormous. So, uh, you know, the power of your words and the power of how you speak and how you think is really significant because look at that. I'm looking at Luke, and when Luke says enormous, it has more power to me than when the other guys say a great multitude because I know Luke was very specific. And so anyhow, you had this enormous crowd that came across the river to the um, garden where Jesus was, and it says that when they said, uh, which one's Jesus? And he said, I am, that they all fell backward. Actually, it said they flew backward and fell down, okay? So the power of uh, the I am, the power of Christ is amazing. And so, and of course, when he's on the cross, we learn that he could have called 10 legions of angels to remove him from the cross. So we know that Jesus went to the cross of his own accord because he decided to do that. He said, I'm submitting to the will of God and I love mankind so much I'm going to do this. Um, and, um, you know, go through all, everything that that entails. So let's read Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 1 in uh, Barclay's translation. This is a letter from Paul who, be, who became an apostle of Christ Jesus because God willed it so. And from our colleague Timothy, so the... Uh, to the consecrated and loyal members of the Christian fellowship in Colossae, grace be to you and every blessing from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you in our prayers because of the reports which have reached us of your Christian loyalty and of the way in which you show your love for all God's dedicated people. You have this loyalty and love because of the hope which is wait, waiting ready for you in heaven, the hope of which you have already heard when the gospel arrived among you and its truth was preached to you. The gospel is spreading and producing lovely lives all over the world. 
just as it is among you from the day you first heard it of God's grace and realized what it truly is. You were taught by Epaphras, our fellow, uh, our dear fellow servant, who is Christ's loyal worker and our representative to you. It was he who told us of that love of yours which the Spirit has inspired. That is why from the day... This is a great prayer to pray, by the way. That is why from the day of which news of you reached us, we never stop praying for you and asking that you may be given spiritual wisdom and understanding. For then you will have complete insight into what God wants you to do. We pray that your life and conduct will be worthy of the Lord and such as will be altogether pleasing to him. We pray that your life will be productive... um, that your life will be productive of all kinds of good action and that you will continue to come to know God better and better. We pray that in God's glorious strength you will receive power to cope with anything, a power which will enable you gladly to meet life with fortitude and patience. We pray that you will be ever grateful to the Father who has made you fit to receive a share in the possession which he promised to his dedicated people in the realm of light. It was he who rescued us from the grip of the power of darkness and translated us to the kingdom of of his dear son. I like that. Rescued us from the grip of the power of darkness and translated us um, to the kingdom of his dear son. It's through his son that we have received the liberation which comes when sins are forgiven. He is the perfect likeness of the invisible God. He is the supremacy over all creation. For he is the agent by whom all things were created. In heaven and upon earth, visible and invisible, spiritual powers and beings, whether they be thrones or lordships or authorities or powers, he is the agent and the goal of all creation. Praise God. He exists before everything else, and everything else holds together in him. The church is his body, and he is its head. He is its beginning, for he was the first to return from the dead, which means that there was no part of the universe in which the topmost place was not his. Uh, Pause there for a second. How in the world was Jesus the first one to return from the dead? Because didn't he raise Lazarus? Didn't he raise the little girl? Didn't he raise the little boy? Actually, in the Old Testament, when somebody fell on the bones of Elisha, he was actually one miracle short of being double anointed from Elijah. And when they threw the dead men in on the bones of Elisha, there was so much apparently residual anointing on those bones that that dead man rose up alive. And then he got his double Well, Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, and we talked about that uh, last week because he was the firstborn. He actually paved the way for us, meaning Jesus not only gained victory over physical death, but also over spiritual death. That's the whole reason, of course, we can receive Christ, we can be born again. It says um, he was the first to return from the dead. So that's not... Speaking of return from the dead physically, that's actually return from the dead spiritually. Spiritual death, the way to think of it, is just separation from God. That's why it was such a significant thing in the garden. Because Jesus is in the garden, and we think, well, like, you know, uh, you know, aren't you fellowshipping with God? Don't you know the plan? Of course he knows the plan. But do you know what it's like to be separated from God when all you've known is connection with God? And so, and to have God, uh, you know, really uh, turn his back on you. So Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, but he also paid the penalty for all of our sin. And he took the, the, um, every disease and every sickness in his own body. He took, and you know, they say that you can categorize all diseases into 40 different categories, and he was actually had 40 uh, lashes. And so Jesus, Jesus experienced all of this as 
a forerunner for us as the one to first experience this so that we could then be victorious in it. So let's, let's continue reading. The church is his body and he is its head. He is its beginning. And for he was the first to return from the dead, which means that there is no part of the universe in which the topmost place is not his. That's so good. For by God's own decision, God in all his completeness made his home in him. More, it was God's decision to effect through him an act of universal reconciliation to himself of everything in heaven and on earth, and it was through his death on the cross that God did bring the whole universe into a relationship with himself. So what was happening on the cross, what Jesus was doing on the cross, was not for Jesus, right? He didn't need to go for himself. He didn't need to go so that he could be like, Uh, purified or shown to be right or anything like that. Actually, he was pure until he got to the cross. Once he got to the cross, all our sins were put on him, and then he was impure. And, um, you know, this is where you you find out how much religious thinking you personally have because you're kind of like, well, Jesus was impure. Like, what are you saying? Well, we're just talking about what the Bible says, that he was perfect in his earth walk. And then he took all of our sin all of our sickness, all of our failure, all of our shortcomings on himself, all of our unrighteousness. And he gave us all of his righteousness. Um, But we talked last week, you know, uh, we don't want to look at the resurrection or Jesus on the cross and just focus on, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. You did it, and now you're sitting in heaven. But why did he do it? Why did he do everything he did? He did it as a forerunner for us. He did it as an example for us. Because Jesus, if he was here in the flesh today, I suppose if he was in this room, that would be pretty awesome. Uh, but the problem is, uh, without the Holy Spirit being able to come and minister to people inside of people, uh, Jesus is limited. He was limited to where he was. And so that's why he said, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come, the Comforter. And so it's not someone that's coming alongside of you only, but actually someone that comes to live inside of you and to fellowship with you and talk with you. And so the series that we're, we're almost finished with, we'll probably finish next week, is being led by the Spirit of God or, say, being tuned in so that you're listening to God so that you find that now in this day, because of what Christ did, we don't have to live alone. We live with Christ on the inside of us. In other words, uh, you may have an action like that you really want to do. Like uh, maybe somebody cut you off in, in the wonderful D.C. traffic and you want to like just make a side comment to them or, or a gesture to them or you want to communicate to them your dissatisfaction in their actions. <laughs> and, um, but you have something on the inside, uh, uh, like uh, don't do that, you know, not in those words, but you know, it's like a still small voice. You know, we've been studying the voice of the Lord in our series. And you find like there's a tug, there's a nudge, there's an uneasiness. Like don't go that direction. Don't do that. This isn't going to be good. And how many people have ever overrode that? I've overrode that before. Uh, especially, you know, if you uh, get passionate and angry and you're, you're th- you know, you just got this on the inside. Don't say this. Don't do this. But the Holy Spirit's a perfect gentleman. He's not going to force you. The one that forces and the one that controls is the devil and demonic forces. Um, But thank God, the Spirit of God um, is right there with the answer if we'll just listen to him, if we'll just turn to him and and yield to him. So um, 
We know, we of course know in 2 Corinthians uh, 5 that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we learn that Christ is the first of a new creation. He's the first one um, to blaze the trail for us and to make the path for us. But this, this stuff is not um, automatic. So it doesn't just happen. Um, you know, the resurrection is probably, I would guess, you know, I'm a, I'm a possibilities person, so I'm not saying I know everything. I definitely don't know everything of the Word of God and, and that, but I would say it's the greatest event that ever took place in all of history. And um, it's certainly where God exerted most of his power. He exerted more power in raising Christ from the dead than any other time, and it said actually that was just like moving his little finger. And uh, so you know how powerful God is. But the greatest event in all of history was the resurrection. And the reason that that's the greatest event is because the devil is defeated. Because the devil was conquered. And, uh, you know, because victory was attained. So that you don't have to be... I go back to that uh, Keith Moore song I talked about last week called No More Bondage. I don't have to be... He's from the South, so he says... Funny English. I don't have to be sick no more. I don't have to be poor no more. I don't have to be bound no more by anything. Um, because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So Jesus, when he gained victory over the devil, um, he actually came up victorious. And it says in Colossians chapter 2, uh, which we're not going to read the full context there, but in chapter 2 it says that he took the devil and paraded him in a triumphal parade like they used to do in, in the battles. A lot of times actually they get their victors and they uh, put their foot on their neck uh, to show the dominion that they gained over them. Well, actually many translations say that he stripped them naked through uh, the great parade of the universe so that everyone could see that the devil was defeated utterly and completely by Jesus Christ. And then Jesus came back and he said, I give you authority. So he delegated his authority to us. That means like, you know, you're like uh, working for the president and he gives you a special assignment. Maybe he actually makes a cyber czar uh, for cyber uh, defense. That's, uh, you know, internet computer defense. And um, he says, I give you this authority. You can go uh, spend... Uh, well, let's be liberal with our money, with the people's money. Uh, you can spend like uh, 500 million, you know, and I want you to hire people and make a website and, you know, do all this type of stuff. Um, well, then that guy, because he has the authority of the president, he can go do that. And, um, but that's not really his. It was delegated from the president. And really the president's authority isn't his. It's delegated from the people. And so you see... Um, you can understand delegated authority uh, pretty easily. You can look if there's a special function, I assume during the, uh, the Cherry Festival parade, that they're going to have some police there at the road and they're going to direct some traffic like they normally do. And that policeman does not physically have the power to stop the traffic. Uh, if you want to plow over him with your 2,000-pound car, you'd probably kill him and go to jail um, pretty quickly. And uh, he doesn't have the physical power to do it, but he has the authority, the delegated power to do that. And, of course, the value of authority is based on what's behind, uh, what's behind that. And so um, we find that Jesus gave his authority to us. He said, I'm going away, but I give unto you authority 
over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will by any means harm you. So Jesus got all of this authority and got all this victory, and then he gave it to us. But the way that we partake of that is we actually identify with Christ. So we need to identify with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So that you can say, like I could say, we could say with Paul, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I think it's in um, uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, where we learn um, right before, I think, verse 17. So it's probably like verse 11 or 12, um, where we learn Jesus took our death so that we could take his life. So when you become a Christian, when I become a Christian, we need to actually live the life of Christ and follow the life of Christ. So we don't become a Christian and then everything just automatically works. Brother Hagin used to say, they don't fall on you like ripe cherries off of a tree. And um, it's nice that uh, Meemaw is here <laughs> because uh, the, that illustration that I used to hear from Dad Hagen for years and years came so alive, not when we were picking cherries, but we were picking peaches. I don't know if you remember that, but we were out picking peaches close to where we lived in Michigan, and um, we went to pick the peaches, and man, they were like, you would touch the limb, and the peach would just fall off, and then you'd be so sad if you didn't catch it in time, because it was so plump and juicy, it would like, some of them were, were rotten, because it was maybe a little past the time, but the other ones, like, you could just get them, and you just touch them, and they just fall off, and they were so good. Well, we think... You know, I don't know why, um, but often we think, when I become a Christian, everything's just going to, now everything's going to turn good, everything's just going to work out just fine. I'm going to have no more problems, everything's going to be good. And um, then, if that's not good enough, you become a Christian, and maybe you're not filled with the Spirit, so you get filled with the Spirit, and then people think the same thing. Well, once I get filled with the Spirit, everything's just going to be perfect. Hunky-dory, there's no, no more problems, everything's done, um, money's just going to come to me. Uh, in droves, and people are, everybody's going to like me, and, and all of this. Well, uh, you actually end up many times with more conflict and more challenges uh, once you're born again and once you're filled with the Spirit, because uh, you really weren't a threat to the devil before, and now you are. And our job is not to sit here and let life pass us by, but actually to take dominion. From the beginning, uh, when you look at the Bible, if you want to interpret it correctly, you need to look at the first time things are mentioned in the Word of God, and then that'll actually give you the precedent for how they're used later on. Well, in the beginning, God created Adam, mankind, and gave him dominion over all of the work of his hands, the garden and all the work of his hands. And he said, um, take dominion. So in the beginning, before there was sin, before they had messed up, he said, take dominion. So, and tend the garden, and name the animals. So, you know, we've probably all known people that um, felt like because they're Christians, they no longer need to work, uh, and they, they just, people should give them money, and I knew somebody that they, like, decided they were going to stop making their house payment, and all this type of stuff, and a lot of times people get like that, you can't talk to them, you want to help them, but uh, uh, they've just decided to flesh out and call it God. And uh, so... We find that we are to take dominion and take our position. And really what we do is we take the position of Jesus Christ. And we live his life and he takes our death. So when you see like the, the open grave, the resurrected tomb, it actually denotes complete freedom. 
Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. So, uh, you know, I have to reiterate this or repeat this, what I said last week, because it blessed me so much. You know, when that, you see the empty tomb, that actually is woman's freedom. Because uh, you think of Islam now because it's like uh, trying to rear its head and stuff like that. And you see how they treat women. And, you know, and then even in America years and years ago, how women were treated. And, you know, I think in places in Asia still like the women can't walk with the man. She has to walk behind the man. Well, you see that empty tomb. You actually see that women are equal. And you not only see that, you see that all races are equal. And so people want to put off on Christianity, well, it's like a prejudiced religion and all this type of stuff. Actually, Christ is the great equalizing power and the equalizing force. And it doesn't matter what your financial status is. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your race is. Jesus came for all mankind, and Jesus equalized all mankind. So not only are you equal in the fact that uh, all of us can come to Christ and receive life eternal, that actually lets us um, live with Christ forever because eternal life really doesn't mean you're living forever because uh, unfortunately, if you don't receive Christ, you will still live forever just in hell apart from God. And uh, we don't want anybody to do that. And uh, that's why we, we preach about Christ and what he did and that it's the free gift of salvation. Uh, but you receive the life and the nature of God life as he has it, and the nature like he has. So God's not unjust. He's not going to ask you to live a life or me to live a life where he does not give us the tools and the equipment to live that with. And he gives us his very nature because the greatest thing in the world is love. The greatest way to live is to live a life of love. And Jesus said that the way people will know that we are his is because of our love. And, uh, that is not natural human love. That's the love of God. Love as God has it and love as God uses it. So that's not a selfish love. Um, that's a self-sacrificing love. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And Paul said, I'm actually a slave for Christ. You know, I could take all of these privileges, but I'm here to serve. And so our demeanor, our stance in life as believers should be, I'm here to serve. You know, I'm your pastor, but I'm here to serve. And um, whenever we kind of get the mentality, whether serving in ministry or just being a Christian, like the world owes me something, we've kind of got things backwards. Because we have the authority, we have the dominion, we have the ability to enforce the victory of Jesus Christ. And I ended last week with um, uh, a few examples. And, you know, I'll just repeat maybe one of them. And that was when we were uh, ministering in Saginaw, Michigan at a church that was looking for a pastor. I stayed at a hotel. My wife didn't happen to be there that time. And uh, this dad with a, a couple kids was there, but he was really hard on one of his kids. I, I mean, I, I guess that's light to say it. He was probably abusive. And uh, we're, I'm in the lobby checking in, and he's just telling his kid, you're the stupidest kid. I have never seen anybody as dumb as you. And just, like, really, like, makes you want to go punch him. And um, so, uh, but what I did is I, I stood there and I just said, you know, I take authority over that spirit that's influencing that man in the name of Jesus. You have to stop what, doing what you're doing. Well, then I went, I guess I didn't bring my bag in, so I went and got my bag from the car. By the time I came back in, he was uh, kneeling down by his son and said, son, forgive me, I'm sorry, I should not have treated you that way, all this type of stuff. Well, I wish that was the end of the story because the next morning I got up right before I'm going to preach, I go to get some food. And um, 
he's doing the same thing. You are the dumbest kid I've ever seen. So I did the same thing again. But of course, uh, with authority, and that's not, uh, we're not going in depth there this morning, but uh, many times you can take authority in other people's life if they're in your presence, and especially if they're under your authority. Like if they're traveling with you or um, uh, you're responsible for them, you can definitely take authority in their life. But you, otherwise, you can't really take the authority in the life of somebody else if they're not with you. You know, so that was me. It was a public space, and um, I paid for a room, so I had authority to be there and a right to be there, and I didn't want to uh, see a, a, a person being treated that way. But our authority extends way beyond what we ever understand. And, you know, remember in Ephesians it says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. Um, we need to like meditate on that scripture and focus on that scripture because it's so easy to get upset at people who are really just responding to a spirit. Or uh, maybe they've been conditioned through experiences in their life that they've not given to Christ. And so they're acting a certain way because they don't know any other way to act. Or they might know another way to act, but they don't know how not to act that way uh, because they haven't fully identified with Christ. So we have uh, a great position of authority to take. Exodus 17, 9 says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose, out, uh, choose us out men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the hilltop. Verse 12, but Moses' hands were heavy and grew weary, so the other men took a stone and put it under his side, uh, so his hands were steady until the going out of the sun. And Joshua mowed down and uh, disabled Amalek and all his people. Well, you see, you remember that story. And Moses, as long as his hands were up, they were winning the battle. As soon as his hands fell down, they were losing the battle. Well, Moses didn't have the power to win the battle. That was the power of God. But his hands had to be held up. And so we find that our position uh, of authority and what happened in that battle was completely dependent upon what happened on the hillside. Right? The fighters are the same fighters. They have the same weapons. They have the same enemy. But their ability to win the battle was actually dependent upon the authority in the mountainside. And so, you know, if you or I go out to fight a battle... And maybe you've got someone at your place of work that's like uh, talking bad about you and um, trying to undermine you and trying to, you know, do their own thing, which is thereby destroying the company. Uh, you know, to go and to fight that in your own power or your own strength is a defeated proposition before you even begin. Uh, because why? Well, um, a couple reasons. They're in the flesh or they're responding to spirits. And have you ever noticed if you get somebody that's like really upset and you go talk to them, especially if you're not on your guard, like the same attitude they have, you'll fight back with the same attitude. Like that will rise up in you, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, I was really happy. I was having the best day in the world, and then I talked to you, and now I feel the same way you are saying you feel. Like the attitude that you have, I'm starting to have that same attitude. Well, the devil's trying to get a hold of you and a hold of me because the devil is flat defeated. He is a liar and he is a deceiver. And the only power that the devil has is lies and deceit. And by his lies and deceit, he gets us to um, defeat ourselves. 
He gets us to um, uh, get on his territory so he can win. Somebody, the best example of this I've ever heard was the devil will trip you and then ask you why you fell. And so that's really how the devil works. So he's the one that, like, he'll put a temptation in your path or something, and he'll keep putting pressure, more pressure, more pressure, more pressure to get you off of what you believe, to get you off of your faith. And then as soon as he gets you to fail, then he says it's your fault. He's the one that really did it. Um, but that's just how he works. He's deceptive, and he wants you to think, like, it's, it's all you, Right? So like somebody said, like, before you're married, the devil tries to get you to have sex all the time. As soon as you're married, he tries to get you not to have sex. Because he always wants you disobeying God. He wants you outside of the law of God. And he wants you to question God in everything you do. That's, that's how he showed up in the garden. Did God really say that? Did, he just knows you're going to be like him. And uh, the devil will also always work to try to get you to uh, focus on self and puff yourself up. Like that, you know, like... like he just, he knows you're going to be like him. You know, you'll be like him. Uh, because the, the devil really wanted to be like God. And the devil was stupid enough to think that he could uh, beat God. And so we have authority from Jesus Christ. So when we look at Christ on the cross, we're not to look at him only as uh, the deity that came to save us from our sins and to save us from hell. But he is the one that brought us into the family of God. He is the one that transferred us from darkness to light, from the power that actually the Bible says that we used to be slaves to serve sin, and now we're not that way any longer. We're slaves to serve God. And Jesus showed us the pathway. Not only did he show us, he did it. He did it for us, and he was our forerunner so that we could follow in his path, and we could do what he does. So stand with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, I plead the blood of Jesus over every uh, person that's listening, over every heart, over every mind, over every body. We receive what Jesus did for us in every part of our being. Satan, you're a liar. You cease from bringing lies, cease from bringing, bringing deception to everyone that's under the sound of my voice. We declare that we are children of God, that we are part of the family of God, that we operate with the life of God and the nature of God and the blessings of God, and evil will not touch us, evil will not come near us, not near our dwelling, because we are hidden in the secret place of the Most High. Father God, we thank you for your word, for the power of your spirit, Father, we pray that your word that was spoken today would penetrate deep into each of our hearts. Father, that we would uh, launch out and step out uh, to a greater plane and a higher place, that you'd give us wisdom, revelation, understanding, and light concerning our position of authority, especially in our own families, but also in our cities and in our regions and in our nation. Father, we lift up to, to you the elections in the United States this fall and even the primaries that are going on. We plead the blood of Jesus over everything that's happening. We pray for your very best 
to be done, for your very best person to get into office, the one that you want in office. We know that you rise up authorities and you bring them down. We're asking you, based on our authority in this nation, that's a nation of the people, we ask you to place your person in office, Father, that you'll cause people to vote for the uh, person that you want in office, and Father, that um, uh, everything will come together in the right ways for the right person uh, to become the leader of our nation. Father, we pray for President Obama and Michelle and Sasha and Malia. We uh, speak protection over them. We plead the blood of Jesus over their protection and their safety, over the protection and safety of our uh, congressional leaders and our Senate leaders and our uh, diplomats and the State Department. Father, we uh, thank you for our nation. We pray that our nation would continue to honor your word, to honor you, and uh, return to the foundation of your word. Father, we pray for the power of your spirit to fall in our nation's capital. Father, we thank you for the power of your spirit to transform lives, to change how we see things and to change how we think. We pray that um, our nation and our politicians wouldn't be so politically minded and so partisan minded, Father, but they would be Jesus Christ minded, that they would uh, make decisions and receive wisdom from you that would promote the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that the name of Jesus would be lifted up in our nation's capital, in our White House, in, our, in um, every member of leadership in this nation, in our state. Father, we thank you that you're good and that your mercy endures forever. Father, we latch ourselves on to our faith in you, and we look to you to do what no man can do. We look to you uh, to raise up godly men and women to serve in this nation. I pray for all of those in our area that are serving, that you'd give them strength. Pray for our intelligence agencies, that you'd give them insight and wisdom into the attacks of the enemy, Father, that you'd give them the names of people to look into, Father, that you'd give them uh, places to be, things to see that they're always in the right place at the right time with the right equipment, well able to thwart any attack that the enemy would try to bring. Father, we pray for those uh, Muslim nations, those that are part of uh, ISIS and different uh, factions of different religions, especially the Muslim religion. Father, we pray for people to be sent to them to uh, preach the gospel. We pray that they would see Jesus Christ and know that he is Lord, that they would, uh, the blinders would fall off of them. Satan, you take your uh, blinders off of them in the name of Jesus, that they would see and that they would know the truth and that they would respond to your call of love. In Jesus' name, amen.